Miss Jamie, <clears throat> Thad Ann Chancery, and Miss Debbie. Landon, would you turn me down a little? Hop mic. <clears throat> Hop mic. That there is the best sound in the wide world, isn't it? The, the mass exodus. <clears throat> I want to thank Jimmy for preaching last Sunday. I love, love, love listening to the men of this church preach and lead us in the study of God's word. You might not realize just how blessed Rich Hill Christian Church is to have men who are not only able and willing, but gifted and called to preach and teach. Very few churches, I don't care what size of church, very few churches have such capable and godly men. I knew Jimmy could handle, uh, as we go through our study in the, the book of 1 Timothy, I know Jimmy could handle all of 1 Timothy 5, and he did so with ease. Jimmy got to wrestle 25 verses. This morning, I'm going to take it easy. I'm just going to take two. So um, <clears throat> Now, if it makes you feel any better, I almost tacked these two verses onto what Jimmy preached last week, so I thought about expanding Jimmy's section, but considering what these verses are. And some commentators, some of your Bibles will even put the first two verses of chapter 6 under the same heading as all of chapter 5. It'll say women, elders, and slaves. But considering the, uh, the topic this morning, even given the connection between chapter 5 and these first two verses of chapter 6, I think the topic covered this morning requires a separate sermon. So let us go ahead and read our text for this morning. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you're able and willing, let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul continues, he says, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. There are many versions of slavery several iterations, and it's important that we discuss what those differences are so that we can understand what Paul is writing to us here. Chances are, chances are what we have in mind is slavery as we know it from American history. We, we read the word slave and we think American history, but this here in 1 Timothy is, is vastly different. It'll be helpful to provide some background and some context to the discussion of slavery so that we can better define our terms and understand the text. World history is filled with various types of slavery. Therefore, we have to be really careful when we speak about this subject. When you hear the word slavery, no doubt there are certain images that come to your mind. But not all forms of slavery look alike. We're going to consider a few different ways that slavery has been practiced uh, throughout history. David Platt has given us a helpful summary of a few different types of slavery. The first that we need to mention is Hebrew servanthood. 
Hebrew servanthood. In the Old Testament, there's a system of Hebrew servanthood that was set up for poor Israelites to become servants. Their servanthood was designed to provide for poorer Israelites and their families. Poverty, sadly, is a reality in every age. And so the law of God made this provision for those in poverty. Hebrew servanthood, if you want a fascinating read, is discussed in Leviticus chapter 25. In this type of servanthood, a person would sell themselves into slavery as a way to escape poverty. They wouldn't be treated as a slave necessarily, but as a hired hand. Now there were those certainly who abused their servants, but this was not God's intention in setting up this system. Hebrew servanthood was much, much different from the pre-Civil War slavery in the southern United States. In the system of Hebrew servanthood, the Lord, this is one of the main differences, the Lord even provided a reprieve for slaves by instituting sabbatical years where all the slaves had to be released. In Exodus, it says this, it says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years and six years only. In the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. Another form of slavery, there's Hebrew servanthood, and another form was present in the Roman Empire. Slavery was deeply ingrained in the fabric of Roman society. Some estimates have over one-third, one-third of all the people in the Roman Empire serving as slaves. That's like 50 to 60 million individuals. Some of those slaves were simply employees. They were teachers or craftsmen or cooks, even government officials. Roman slavery, a big difference, Roman slavery wasn't based on ethnicity or skin color, rather socioeconomic status. In order to become a Roman citizen, which everyone wanted to be a Roman citizen, people would sell themselves into slavery and would work for their freedom. Many slaves were free by the time they were 30 years old. However, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't a great life by any means. Slaves were still marginalized and powerless. They were prone to disgrace and insult. They were saddled with sometimes grueling labor and harsh treatment, and they were often on the receiving end of physical and sexual abuse. This system of slavery was, as I said, deeply ingrained into the empire's economy, which made it very tough to get out of. Common in colonial America was indentured servitude, Many people couldn't afford to come to the new country on their own, so they'd con contract themselves out as indentured servants and agree to work in certain households for a certain amount of time until they could earn a certain amount of money and pay off their debt. Historians estimate that over one-half to two-thirds of white European immigrants who came to America came as indentured servants. Indentured servitude and Hebrew servanthood are pretty closely related. There's a lot of similarity. Fourth and finally is a picture of slavery connected to the African slave trade. This type of slavery was promoted across the 18th and 19th centuries uh, in Europe and in America. Within this evil system, millions upon millions of Africans were traded and sold across Europe. They were transported in cruel grueling conditions. Many of them died on the way to where they were going. Uh, if they lived upon being sold into slavery, these slaves were subjected to harsh working conditions as well as physical abuse, sexual abuse, and torture just for the fun of it. 
Frederick Douglass, one of the leaders of the abolitionist movement, wrote the following about his first slave master, Captain Anthony. He says this, He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of a day by the most heart-rending shrieks of my own aunt, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip, till she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayer from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. I don't relish uh, sharing such an account with you, and yet I realize that short paragraph is a very, very, very tame representation of the atrocities of the day. Uh, It can get a lot worse than that. This slavery, this cannot be downplayed and it cannot be excused. There is no justification for even one ounce of the African slave trade. It's a horrific moment in our history, this kind of slavery which took place on our soil not that long ago. It's important to note that the slavery that you and I are familiar with, the slavery that took place on American soil, the slavery that divided the states, is not, that is not the kind of slavery that Paul is addressing here in 1 Timothy 6. There's no mention of slavery anywhere in the Bible that can be used to justify or okay the African slave trade. None. And the reason I say all of this is because in my life, I have heard more than a few people say, well, the Bible talks about slavery, and slaves are even instructed to, to not disobey or disrespect their masters. It's apples and oranges, what the Bible talks about and what happened here. It's not even apples and oranges, it's apples and limousines, The slavery that Paul discusses here and the sinful, racist, bigoted slavery of the American South do not belong in the same category. They're not on the same page. They're not even in the same book. They don't even belong in the same library. Apples and limousines. Just because it's mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible encourages it. Make sense? Never, ever, 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 because it's a really bad Bible interpretation that says, well, the Bible says that was okay. It absolutely doesn't. Never, never equate the two. Never. You just look foolish and make it clear that you're a really bad student of the word. Just because the Bible mentions it doesn't mean the Bible encourages it. Divorce, for instance, is discussed at some length in the Bible. That doesn't make it commendable. You with me? We need to understand the kind of slavery that Paul is referencing so that we don't begin to confuse or equate the various kinds of slavery. Paul is by no means condoning the mistreatment of slaves. We need to take uh, a few notes, note a few truths about slavery in the Bible. First, we need to see that slavery, no slavery, is part of God's creation. It's not part of God's original created order. It's not. It's a post-fall invention. Slavery is always, always, always the product of sin. Poverty, class distinction, prejudice, bigotry, favoritism, abuse, it's all sin. Situations in a sinful world call for specific instructions to a sinful world. Let me say that again. Situations in a sinful world 
call for specific instructions to that sinful world. Because slavery existed, it existed, and because it existed, something had to be said about slavery. Regulations and protections had to be put into place. Read the Old Testament, there's all kinds of protections for the slave. Uh, If someone was to to hit their slave and knock out a tooth, well, that slave was going to get reparations. If you gorge out his eye, the slave gets to go free. All sorts of protections. Biblical instructions concerning slavery do not imply biblical support of slavery. Just because there's instructions about how slaves and masters are supposed to behave doesn't mean that the Bible supports it. When slavery is addressed, it's addressed to help people, to help shepherd people who were trapped in a sin-stained economic and social system that produced the need for slavery. It had to be spoken about. It has to be spoken about here this morning. Uh, Again, I don't relish talking about it here. Uh, This is not fun sermon for pastor to preach. It's really not. Again, really tempted to tack these verses on and let Jimmy handle it last week while I was in Branson, and I could just say, yeah, well done, Jimmy. Um, But here we are. It should be noted, uh, I'm going off my notes, which is always a bad idea. Slavery still exists today. In fact, there are more slaves in the world at this moment than all other times combined. And a lot of them travel right up and down Interstate 49. And there is nothing, nothing that excuses or justifies it. In fact, our job as Christians is to do everything we can to fight against it. We need to stand against slavery of all kinds, whether it's in the past or in the present. The Bible very clearly condemns slavery. Slavery undermines the dignity and the worth of a human being by functionally denying it. You're not a human being anymore. You, you are my property. You are here for my pleasure. Slavery undermines God's creation and the Imago Dei, the image of God in which all people All people are created. Every single person has equal dignity and worth before God and because of God. Every single person. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln who came up with the idea that all men are created equal. That is not an American democratic presidential invention. It is God's truth. It is the creator's truth. Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. But this was God's design. This was God's idea long before Lincoln or we were. In Genesis, way back in the creation account, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Every single person has equal dignity and worth before God and because of God. Every single person. Every person is of enormous value because God says so. Christians should be the first to stand up and say that slavery, any slavery, all slavery, including the slavery perpetrated by our forefathers, was shameful, always. It was sinful, always. It was wrong. Always. Some Christian, uh, again for those listening online, I'm doing air quotes, some Christian pastors and Christian church members in the Christian South 
were buying and selling and trading and abusing, using African slaves. It's one of the darkest, most shameful moments in our history. True Christianity, true Christians at that point, made an impact upon the institution of slavery. Christianity was, in fact, the major social force in altering a man's understanding of the worth of the individual that before God, because of God, from creation, all men are of equal value. It's Christians who took a stand and changed the world. This realization and the conviction of Christians led to the overflow of slavery as a social institution. When we come here to this in 1 Timothy 6, that was all by way of introduction, right? Really fun introduction. When we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is addressing Christian slaves who are serving under either unbelieving or believing masters. Some of the slaves the apostle is addressing were likely sitting in the church amongst their Christian brothers and sisters who loved them and cared for them, were commanded to provide for them as fellow members of the body of Christ. Here's why. Here's why this is important. Why Paul and the other New Testament authors have to address the issue of slavery. The system of slavery was deeply rooted in this time, in the time that Paul writes, both socially and economically. It wasn't going to change overnight. It was unlikely that this system of slavery was going to be overturned or abolished anytime soon. So it was important to have rules for how Christians were to function within an imperfect and sinful world. The early church needed to understand how to live out their faith, even and especially through difficult times. This here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, is not Paul's approval or God's approval of slavery. This is Paul leading and teaching the church how to live out their faith even in unfavorable circumstances. If that's not a word for us here and now, I'm not sure what is. How do we, how do you and I live out our faith in unfavorable circumstances? Maybe the times here and now in the Bible Belt, in 2019, maybe it's not all that bad, but Jesus tells us it's going to get bad for us. How do we live out our faith in unfavorable times, circumstances? And how, maybe even more importantly, how do we relate to one another in the church? How do we relate to people that we differ from? Paul says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect. So that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. Paul refers to those who are slaves as under a yoke. Under a yoke. Yokes are designed for animals, uh, particularly oxen. A yoke is, is a large-shaped wooden beam placed over the shoulders of working animals. It would keep, them, uh, keep a pair of them together and give the worker some control of the oxen or the cattle. To be sure, a uh, yoke of slavery speaks to the oppression and the subjugation of slavery, but, lest you check out altogether, but it also makes us think of our responsibility as Christians, should make us think of our responsibility as Christians. We are not slaves to any earthly master. We're not servants oppressed by another person. But there is a yoke that you and I, as Christians, are to bear. 
and we're to bear it willingly. Jesus, upon inviting us to come to him for rest and comfort, he still mentions his yoke. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus' yoke, his teaching, his moral instruction, his ethics for the Christian life, that yoke is upon us. He is our master. We are his servants. What's different is that Jesus' yoke isn't oppressive, and it's not burdensome. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light, but there's still a yoke. There's still a burden that we bear. We are under not a yoke of slavery, but under the yoke of Jesus' teaching, his instruction, his demands on our lives. We are, first of all, yoked to God's name. Paul wants slaves to honor. Uh, Your Bible might say fully respect their masters. Just as the church, just as Jimmy covered last week, the church was to honor widows and to honor elders Uh, double honor towards some. Those slaves who belonged to Christ were to honor their masters, whether their masters were believers or unbelievers. The reason? So that God's name may not be slandered. Christians who happened to be under the yoke of slavery were even more importantly yoked to God's name, making sure his name wouldn't be slandered or blasphemed. They were to behave in a way that would glorify God. This is, after all, the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is, after all, what drove Paul and what drives all of the Bible. Our overriding concern should be, our overriding concern is that God would be glorified in us and through us and even in spite of us. This has been explained throughout 1 Timothy as we've gone along, our reason for being and doing. We pray for people, for other people, because it pleases God. We honor the widow because it pleases God. Elders are to have a good reputation so that God's name isn't dragged through the mud. Paul's concern in addressing the conduct of Christian slaves is that they would carry the name of Christ well that God would be glorified, and that God's glory would be made known, especially before unbelieving masters. These unbelieving masters would be able to see the grace of God in the lives of their slaves who had become followers of Christ. We, as slaves to Christ, have the same responsibility. You and I have the same yoke upon us. We are to make sure that God's name is praised, that God is glorified in what we do, and in how we live. And there's some application for us here. Whether you are a student or an employee, remember, every time you turn in a project or hand in an assignment, every time you make a decision or act in any way, your chief goal is to make sure that you reflect the glory of God. No matter who your boss is, no matter who your teacher is. Ultimately, your master is Christ, and we're most concerned about his name. We are yoked to God's name, and we're yoked to the gospel. Another goal in the conduct of slaves 
is the advancement of the gospel. Slaves are to honor their unbelieving masters, says Paul, so that God's name, notice, God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Paul doesn't want the good news about Jesus Christ to be slandered or blasphemed or ignored. And so he calls for Christian slaves to be obedient to and honoring of their masters. Their obedience to the yoke of Christ, their honoring of the of their unbelieving masters will adorn the gospel, Titus says. Their honor expressed toward their masters will show how life-changing and life-impacting the gospel really is. Paul's exhortation for slaves to honor their masters has a missionary motivation. If unbelieving masters see the hard work of their believing slaves, they'll have to step back and wonder why. What has changed about them? This opens the door for the proclamation of the gospel and ministry to their masters. This is what we're after. This is. That we would have an opportunity to glorify the Lord and then to share the good news about him. Christianity is not not primarily about social reform. It's not. Paul isn't urging them to work against the system of slavery. He's not organizing letter-writing campaigns or sit-ins. He's not calling for boycotts or slave strikes. Instead, Paul is telling Christian slaves to live for the proclamation of the gospel and for the salvation of their masters. He says nothing about overthrow the whole system. He says live in it faithfully in a way that glorifies God and proclaims the gospel. Can you imagine receiving that? How tough that would be. And yet changing society or changing the political system, neither of those will ever in a million years save or transform one single soul. It won't. Society will never transform a heart. The political machine will never in a million years transform or alter a human soul. The gospel will. The gospel will. People transformed by the gospel, a society transformed by the gospel, will start to see societal structures transformed. You reach the world with the gospel, the world starts to look different, not the other way around. The way the Bible addresses slavery is by aiming for personal redemption and personal transformation. The gospel, it's been said, I love this picture, lays the explosive charge that ultimately leads to the detonation and the destruction of slavery altogether. It's the gospel that exploded slavery. It's the gospel that will get rid of all evil in this world. We, yoked to Christ, must put the proclamation of the gospel, like these slaves in Paul's day, we must put it ahead of our comfort before convenience. Gospeled people, if you have received the gospel, if you are a gospeled person, gospeled people will gospelize. Gospeled people will share the gospel. We take the gospel far and wide. We're yoked to it. We are also yoked to one another. Twice. In verse 2, Paul uses the phrase, fellow believers. This is the word for brothers and sisters. The conversation has shifted now. Verse 2 marks the shift. And Paul is speaking to Christian slaves who have Christian 
slave masters, Christian slaves and Christian masters. It seems that some Christian slaves were taking advantage of their masters and were slacking off on their commitment, their agreement to serve. Their fellow believers, their brothers and sisters in Christ, are worthy of their respect, worthy of their hard work, worthy of their love, even. Their Christian masters, verse 2 says, should be dear to them. Whenever, wherever you and I encounter a fellow believer, a brother and sister in Christ, we need to realize that we are tied to them. We're yoked to them. Our relationship to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is stronger and more permanent, more lasting than any other relationship. Jesus makes this clear. A discussion, uh, some Sadducees go and ask Jesus about marriage in the afterlife. And Jesus says, Man will neither be married nor given in marriage. So we know that that when we're with the Lord, we won't relate to husband and wife as such. And I could be wrong, but I very much doubt if we don't relate to our husband and wife, husband or wife as husband or wife, we won't relate to our parents or our children the way we do here. The relationship, the relationship that lasts the bond that lasts will be those within the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Relationally, I hate to break it to you, but I am closer to you, my brother and sister in Christ, than I am to anyone else. And you are closer to me, your brother in Christ, than you are to anyone else. Or you should be. I'm telling you, I know it's heartbreaking to think that you're stuck with me, for the, all of eternity. But this is the relationship. Look around you. This is the relationship that lasts. It's the family of God, not our biological family. It's the family of God that lasts. And all of this matters deeply. This should play itself out in our lives. Paul says even slaves to masters, this should play yourself out. It matters that they are your fellow believers at home and at church and at school and at work. In whatever situation we find ourselves, brothers, sisters, we are yoked to one another. We are. Forever. The essence of Christianity is that our master has become our servant. And so in turn, we gladly become his slave. As Debbie read earlier, Paul says elsewhere, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus took the form of a slave for our sake. For his sake, we willingly become his. Every follower of Christ, every follower of Christ should long to be identified as a slave of the Lord Jesus. Paul does just this at the start of most of his letters. He calls himself a a servant, a bondservant. It's the same word for slave. I'm a doulos of Christ, he says. We are slaves. We should willingly call ourselves slaves of Christ. 
those who take up his yoke and praise his name, proclaim his gospel, and love his people. This is what our master demands of us. And we do this as our glad and joyful service. We do this as slaves with a smile on our face and a yoke upon our back because our master is worthy. Here's the truth. You are a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. Which one are you? Slave to sin? Slave to Christ? Which one are you yoked to? Father, we thank you for your word. Whether it's 25 verses or two verses, we thank you for it. We give you praise for what your word still speaks to us today. May we as your people realize our slavery, that formerly, before Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were caught in a system with no escape, with no out. And then you sent your son Christ to free us, to buy us back, that we would be yours forever and ever. Father, as our master, you have the right to instruct us, to guide us, to lead us, to command us. And yet you've given us this yoke that is easy, a burden that is light. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who helps us, who allows us, makes it possible for us to follow you. Father, be with my brothers and sisters here this week. As we go from this place, uh, as we go to work or to school, as we go home to do laundry or to change diapers or whatever it is you have us to do, would we do so so that you are glorified in us, so that the gospel is proclaimed among us and among those who need to hear. Father, we thank you for Jesus. It's to him we humbly submit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song, Without Him. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Love you all.
Holy 